been a joy to sing with you this morning. And already, what a wonderful time we've had worshiping our Lord. It's not just something we do in our time in the Word. It's everything that takes place when God's people are gathered. What a blessing it is even to hear Pastor Ben sharing his testimony and the story of God's grace in his life. And it would be be fascinating if there was a, a library here at Valley Bible Church that just contained the testimonies of every person God's brought into this particular assembly of his people. What a fascinating thing that would be. Maybe some of you of the writerly persuasion can assemble such a thing, but what a treasure that would be. This morning we are coming in our study of John really to a pretty special passage we have one more, one more passage we'll be looking at in John as we bring this gospel to a close. There's that almost hesitation if you've ever read a really good book when you begin to approach the end and you want to keep reading because everything's coming together and it's exciting and you don't want to keep reading because you're almost done and you don't want to close that book. And as we come to our passage this morning, we will be coming to the final words of Jesus that he spoke that are recorded in John's gospel, the wrapping up of John's accounting of the life of Jesus. There's some autobiographical and concluding remarks that are also important and will form the very conclusion of John's gospel that we'll look at next week. But in many ways, we're sort of getting our last look at Jesus himself in John's eyewitness memories of him in our passage and what a poignant passage it is we have centered this morning around the faith candle as we've already begun to sing and to contemplate that great work that God has done on our behalf in sending his son as we've begun to reflect on what he does in us as a result of his work in our lives. This morning, I hope, will be a particular challenge in living out our faith in a way that is visible, that is clear, that honors our Savior. You can see, if you've got your notes, the title of our message this morning is taken from that top verse there on, on my left, your right, from Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Speaking of the Messiah who came, and he did indeed crush the serpent, but this particular verse asks for that crushing to go even further than Satan as an external reality, but for Christ to crush the remains of that sinful serpent in us, to conquer sin within us, to display his saving power within that which was ruined and is now being restored in Christ. And we will see... Christ call his own to do that in our passage this morning. If you have your copy of God's word, I'd invite you to take it and turn with me once again to the last chapter of the Gospel of John, John 21. We'll be reading this morning verses 18 down through 23. As you are able, I'd encourage you to stand to honor the reading of God's word. John chapter 21, beginning in verse 18, says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. 
And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Therefore, this saying went out among the brethren that that disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? Would you pray with me? Father, we gather this morning and we do so in gratitude and with great joy. To be called your people is no small honor. To be so unworthy of that title is truly humbling. And yet we do not gather with the trembling that comes from a fear of your divine wrath, but the trembling that comes from a great and a holy awe that one so powerful as you would exert yourself so powerfully in sending your son to die for us that we might have in him that perfect substitute necessary to gain peace with you and we might find in him that life which by your spirit is growing and blossoming within us not only in its reckoning in your court but also in our experience of it in our lives and i pray this morning that we would be encouraged and challenged to live for you to follow you by following your son. And so it is in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's always interesting in various books, movies, plays, when you get to that scene of of conflict where some plucky general, leader, rebel, upstart, something has to convince a bunch of people to follow him into an almost impossible situation. And rarely then at that point is there the ability to say, you know, I'm just so nice and charismatic. You should just do whatever I say. You know, typically the appeal is there is a cause, there is a purpose, there is something here so much bigger than all of us, so much more glorious than all of us that it should compel you to follow me into great danger. Whether that's the St. Crispin's speech of Henry V in Shakespeare, whether that's the July 4th speech from Independence Day. There's something great and glorious here. Join with me, follow me, let us go into what seems like perhaps overwhelming odds together. And yet it is interesting in our passage this morning, uh, Jesus is, in fact, the greater reason. He is, in fact, the greater thing. To follow him is the great glory. And he is calling out one of his own to do that, and to do that in the face of what is guaranteed loss that will for him be guaranteed gain. And I don't want us to to move lightly over this concept, especially as we come into Christmas, as the theme of gift giving is so large and looms large over us. It is right when we see 
those Christmas presents under our tree, to be reminded that, that God has given us a great and good gift in Jesus Christ, to be reminded of all the benefits that we have in him. And yet it is also right that we would stop at this time of the year and reflect on the incredibly high calling it is to receive the gift of Jesus Christ. And the demands and expectations that being the recipient of such grace places upon us. And Jesus isn't mincing words here. And he is helping Peter to understand. For those who say, I love you, I love you, I love you then there is a path that we must walk. And so if you're taking notes this morning, we're going to look at the journey of faith and what that entails for us. We'll do so by looking at our passage in two parts. And the first point we will see this morning is this, that faith will follow until your story is complete. And that really is, in a way, a summary of what I want to look at in the big picture this morning, that the fullness of love for Christ that Jesus has just elicited from Peter in our previous passage is going to be demonstrated in obedience, and obedience that is true will persevere all the way to the end. If you are joining us this morning and you haven't been along for the whole ride through John, we invite you here to this climactic scene. Christ is risen he has now met with his disciples for the third time. He had met with them the day of his resurrection. He had met with them a week later. Now he meets with them again on the shores of the Sea of Galilee in the north. He's worked another miracle in their sight. They've recognized him and flocked to the shore. They're sharing a breakfast of fish and bread. And in the midst of this scene, Jesus has turned to Peter, to Peter who had denied him three times. And he has restored Peter, as, as Pastor Ben showed us so movingly in calling him out. Do you love me three times? To which Peter responded, yes, I do. And then Jesus had said, then devote your life to the care of my church. Express that love for me in obedient service to my people. That wasn't the end of the conversation. There's no black ink between the passage we looked at last week and the passage we're looking at this week. Jesus is still talking. Having called Peter to a life of love expressed in obedience, having reaffirmed Peter in that, he's not done with him. And so if you follow along with me in verse 18 is Jesus continues the same conversation with Peter and he begins by saying this, truly, truly, I say to you, We've seen that truly, truly phrase multiple times in John's gospel. In fact, this is the 25th and last time that Jesus or somebody in, in the context of John's gospel has said, truly, truly. It's in every case been a phrase that's designed to say, pay close attention. If you're, if you're drifting off a little bit, focus. I don't want you to miss this. Tune in. And for Peter, this is no joke. Because these words are going to ring in Peter's ears for the rest of his life. And I think they should ring in our ears as well. Truly, truly, says Jesus to Peter, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. That's a pretty ominous twist, isn't it? 
that must have been an odd thing perhaps for Peter to have heard, especially right after this conversation he's had with Jesus. Jesus is alive. He's risen. All was not lost. Our Savior is back. But I have denied him. What does that mean for our relationship? And then Jesus comes back. Do you love me? I do. Do you love me? I do. Do you love me? I do. And Peter's been broken by that. He was grieved by that. But he's also been restored by that to see that the Savior still cares for him, that that relationship is being restored. And then Jesus goes on to say in the immediate next verses, and when you get old, you're going to get crucified. Whoa. Whoa. I would imagine a a hush fell on the disciples as Jesus says this to Peter. Wow. This statement is, is an announcement, and it's also really in many ways a test of that love that Peter has now declared three times. Peter is one who has been prone to outbursts of confidence, hasn't he? But he's often been a little short when it comes to following through. And Jesus is saying, if you follow through on what you just said, let me give you a glimpse of your future. It'll be on a cross. In some ways, Jesus here is in fact actually granting Peter's unwitting request that he had made all the way back in John 13 in the upper room. When Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will later. And Peter had said, I will follow you even to death. All these other turkeys might turn away from you, but I'm your man. And Jesus had said, well, you you will be, right? You will be. Tonight you're going to be the man who denies me three times before the rooster crows but you will follow later. And Jesus is picking up on that conversation here. One way to perhaps look at this passage here is this is Peter's midlife crisis. This is his midlife crisis. Here he is at the middle of his life, and Jesus says, remember when you were younger? Remember the independence you had? The freedom you had? And now, Peter, here standing at the middle of your life, I want you to think forward. I want you to look at the end of your life. This is where you're going. And he gives Peter this almost horrific vision of his life when old age will give way to violent death. And Peter must choose. What will he do with this knowledge? Well, John, in verse 19 tells us what Peter will do because by the time John writes verse 19, Peter had already done it. Verse 19 says this, now this he said, speaking of Jesus, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. This is John's commentary on Jesus' statement and this verse is rich in both biography and theology. Precisely dating John's gospel is pretty difficult But it seems likely to have been written quite late in the first century, perhaps in the late 70s, perhaps in the early to mid-80s. And so as John dips his quill and begins writing verse 19 here, Paul is dead. Both of the biblical James are dead. Jude, Philip, Thomas, Matthew, indeed almost all of the apostles are likely dead. And Peter... John's close friend is dead. 
according to tradition, which always does involve a, a grain of salt. Peter preached the gospel boldly in the face of much persecution. That part we know. But according to tradition, he suffered repeated torture and was eventually finally crucified as Jesus had told him he would be around the same time that the fires were burning their way through Rome under Nero around AD 64. And again, according to tradition, Peter is reported to have requested and been granted an allowance of being crucified upside down for he felt himself unworthy to share in that exact same death that his Savior had died. Clement I of Rome, a first century church father, wrote a letter to the church in Corinth in which he said this, but to pass from examples of ancient days, let us come to those champions who live nearest to our time. Let us set before us the noble examples which belong to our generation. By reason of jealousy and envy, the greatest and most righteous pillars of the church were persecuted and contended even unto death. Let us set before our eyes the good apostles. There was Peter, who by reason of unrighteous jealousy endured not one nor two, but many labors, and thus having borne his testimony, went to his appointed place of glory. We can hear the echo in there of Jesus' words. Eusebius confirms this in his history of the early church when he says, but Peter seems to have preached in Pontus and Galatia and Bithynia and Cappadocia and Asia to the Jews of the dispersion. And at last, having come to Rome, was crucified head downwards for he himself had asked to suffer so. Some have wondered why was it not Peter who sat on sort of the seat of authority over the church in Jerusalem? If you recall in studying through Acts, that it is in fact James who sort of presides over the council of the church in Jerusalem. And I think for Peter, after this commissioning of Jesus, he had this burden, I've got to go find all of the sheep and I need to go care for all of them. His was not to sit down and administrate the church. His was to go out and shepherd the sheep. And this he did well all the way till death, all the way till death. And so this verse is written in the fresh memory of Peter's and many others' deaths. And it must have been somewhat painful for John to reflect on and to write on as he quickly was becoming the last, if indeed not already the last, of the original apostles who had followed Jesus that remained alive in this world. But not only is this verse rich in biography, it's rich in theology. Notice that this verse doesn't say that it defines the death by which Peter would suffer as simply something that just this is how Peter's going to leave the earth or simply how Peter is going to pay back for his denials or, or this is how Peter is going to suffer for Jesus or some other purpose. No, indeed, verse 19 gives us that great treasure that the death of Peter is going to be to glorify God, that it is going to accomplish something precious and indeed this is the beauty of christian death in general not just for peter we each have that opportunity in our own time of dying to seal the testimony of christ's work in us to the very end we ought not to take that for granted because christ can glorify himself in his faithful ones persevering to the end 
while testifying to the truth, Christ can also glorify himself sometimes by taking us out when we are in disobedience. As Paul warned the church in Corinth that he was doing when they took communion in an unworthy way. So it is possible for a believer to be the child of God and God to glorify himself in their life by demonstrating his holiness and his discipline. But by God's grace, that is for the few and for the many, there remains the opportunity for Christian death to glorify God by sealing our Christian confession with our last breath of physical endurance. And this is something I think we think too little of in our culture. We long for deaths that are distant, that are comfortable, when I think we should desire that our deaths would be faithful first and foremost. I've always been struck in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Solomon writes there, A good name is better than a good ointment, and the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. And we often kind of just leave that verse by itself. But I think Solomon goes on to explain what he means by that in verse 2 when he says this, It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting because that is the end of every man and the living takes it to heart. And that word end there is an interesting word because it doesn't just mean this is where his life stops, but this is where who he is as a man is summed up. Your story, what your life signifies, what it testifies to is still being written all the way up until you're dead. And then for the first time, who you are is known. What your life has been about will be known. And we've seen this go so many different directions. People that have spent decades in the spotlight of national attention as heroes and role models and people to be admired and people to be looked up to. And then at the very end, it's all unraveled. The lies, the deception, the hidden sin, the betrayals. And at their end, they die in shame. For Peter... He is being given the blessing, as we all are, of having the opposite story. To have been those who were rebels against God, imperfect, faltering, fainting, and yet who persevered by the grace of God to the very end and died in him. And so Peter's life was not ultimately going to be defined by his faltering, by his foolishness, by his denials, but his life will be defined by where it ended, glorifying God. There is a unique glory given to God in the death of those who endure great suffering for his name, but there is also a precious glory in the death of all those who, having been loved by Jesus, who loved us to the end, are kept in that love to love him to our end as well. And so Jesus gives us a comforting truth in telling us not only the fact of Peter's death in the manner that Jesus foretold, but also the purpose of Peter's death, a purpose in which we can share. And that sharing hinges on our acceptance of the words which Jesus next spoke to Peter and which he, in the ongoing call of the gospel, is therefore speaking to us as well. Look with me as we continue on. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, Follow me. Follow me. Talk about being put on the spot. 
This brief conversation has been pretty intense. Do you love me? Tend my lambs. Do you love me? Shepherd my sheep. Do you love me? Tend my sheep. Oh, and it's going to get you violently murdered at the end of your life. So knowing that, follow me. That little phrase, follow me, is probably the shortest way to sum up the heart of what it means to live the Christian life. And in in many ways, this is how John is summing up the totality of his gospel and what his gospel is calling us to, to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and believing to have life in his name. And what does that life look like? Following him. If we have been made alive in Jesus, then we will hear his voice and follow him. As Jesus said in John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. This is not optional. As Jesus told us in John 12, 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Today we saw the faith candle lit. We saw the faith candle lit. How do we know? Because you can see it burn. The candle did not light itself. It did not have that capacity. It did not choose fire. But you can tell that fire has come to the candle because, lo, it burns. Similarly, this is how the Father glorifies himself in our lives when we follow the Son. This is how saving power, the saving power of Jesus is displayed, as the title of our message puts it, to the world. Another way you can look at it is this. We do not follow Jesus for faith. We have a faith from Jesus for following. Trying to be a good person, trying to be a faithful person on our own will never be successful enough to earn the privilege of being counted as one of the children of God. We can't do it. But those who have trusted in Jesus and what he has already accomplished on their behalf in his death, in his resurrection, as John has showed us, They are granted salvation, but a salvation that is meant to be demonstrated in a life of imitating Jesus. Ben even quoted this morning in his testimony from Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. But then verse 10 goes on to say, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Or as Paul would write to the church in Rome, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. But there's another aspect to this following. Not only when Jesus calls us to follow him, is he calling us to in faith follow him in obedience and in righteousness. But I believe, especially as it's being highlighted here in the way that he is speaking to Peter, there is, in addition to that, a close imitation of the actual arc of the life of Jesus as well. Love, obedience, humiliation, For Peter, literal crucifixion, death, burial, and eventual resurrection, all to the glory of God the Father. And for us today, we may not all be called to this same death, but we are called to follow Jesus 
with that same attitude. As Philippians 2 says that we ought to have this attitude in ourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, and then goes on to explain how Christ came down in a form like us, not regarding equality with God a thing to be grasped, and that he suffered and was obedient to the point of death. And it was for that reason then that he was highly exalted. And we will look at that passage a little bit later in our time around the Lord's table. The example of Jesus for us was not complete until he had reached the very end of his earthly life. And our faith is not fully formed until we too have followed Jesus to the very end. And so a few lessons from this section for us this morning. The first is this. Do you love Jesus? Do you follow him? Do you love Jesus? Do you follow him? We must ask ourselves both of those questions together because love without obedience is hypocrisy. Obedience without love is legalism. They must go together if they are to be true. If Christ has captured the affections of our heart by his grace, that will inevitably begin to express itself in a life that is conforming itself to his image. And so this Christmas season, are we not only thankful for the baby who came in the manger, are we beginning to look more like him than we did when we celebrated that last year? Have we followed him this last year? And I would perhaps encourage you to consciously this week sit down and prayerfully say, Lord, have I followed you this year? Would you show me how your grace has been working in my life? Would you show me those ways in which I am turning from sin and turning towards the righteousness that I ought to be expressing as a child of God? And I think that will be an encouragement for us because sometimes we just spend so much time saying how far we have yet to go that we have not paused to give God thanks for what he has done. But it may also be a convicting time to realize perhaps in this last year there are areas of my life where I have been content not to follow. And what a, what a wonderful time of the year to renew our desire, not only to just say we love Jesus, but to love him so much that we are conforming ourselves to his image. We are following him. Secondly, have you counted the cost? Have you counted the cost? This has come up a number of times in John's gospel, but you can't miss that theme here in this passage. For Peter, the cost was very explicit. Crucifixion. If you follow me, Peter, not only will you suffer in the abstract, you will be crucified. What if that was something Jesus told you? Dear, comfortable saint in generally middle-class Spokane Valley, if you keep this Christian thing up, you will die slowly and painfully for Christ. How many of you will be back here next week to see what happens? Right? What if he's calling your number? <laughs> How would that thin our church if each of us were to know that our end would be a violent one for Christ, if our road would be a hard one for Christ, if suffering was to be severe and inevitable, if we kept gathering together in his name and following him? I hope that we would see very little difference 
I think it would cause us all to be a little more sober-minded when we gathered. But by God's grace, this is the courage that we ought to live in, that though he call me to follow, even in death, I will follow him. Count the cost of claiming the baby this Christmas. A third observation, is your story over yet? Is your story over yet? The Christian life is not one of go to Sunday school, get saved, get involved in all the different church ministries, dodge burnout through your 20s and 30s and 40s, taper off in your 50s, and then let everybody else do the Christian thing and just sort of watch it go on until Jesus takes you to heaven. And that's kind of like the American Christian thing, but that's not the Christian thing. There is, I think, great encouragement here for those saints who are approaching the end of their lives. As Peter looks, or excuse me, Jesus looks to Peter and he says, this is what you did when you were young. I'm calling you to follow me today. But that pinnacle moment whereby you will glorify me is waiting for you in old age. I'm not done with you until I'm done with you. And you'll know because then you'll be with me. I would encourage those saints in this room who have followed Christ faithfully for many, many years and those perhaps who are coming into the latter seasons of their life, do not be disheartened in following him even in old age. There is great glory to be given to your Savior in the ministry that you do even now in that season of life. In fact, for many, it will be the most fruitful years of ministry even as it is often, truthfully, a very difficult season of life in other aspects. Do not neglect to continue to tend the sheep, to shepherd the flock, to love Christ by loving others, all the way up until you have sealed your testimony. And finally, as we think on this violent death that Peter was facing, I think it is also just a reminder to us to pray for the persecuted church to pray for the persecuted church, to pray for those who are even now, even today, sealing their testimonies with their blood to the glory of God. There are places around this world where this is a daily reality and every once in a while it spikes in the news and you see all the articles and you see all the Facebook posts and you see all the Instagrams and you see all this emotional outpouring and then a week later, they're still suffering and dying and largely forgotten. Let us not forget our brothers and sisters in Christ. If God has called them to glorify him in their deaths, we ought, not, we ought not to steal that joy from them if that is their calling, but we ought not to leave them alone to face that unaccompanied by prayer and support from the saints. And perhaps even as we discuss the persecuted church and those paying such a high price, it is almost embarrassing to compare the comparatively low cost of following Jesus for most of us here today. But as we're going to see in our last verses this morning, such comparisons are actually not helpful. And Peter's going to help us learn this lesson by helpfully putting his foot in his mouth just one more time in this gospel to set up a chance for us to learn this lesson. Faith 
Faith must follow all the way to the end. But it's more than that. Faith must also follow, even if your story is a unique one. Is a unique one. Faith will follow, though your story is unique. Look at verse 20. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Now, commentators debate back and forth and literally call each other out by name, which is kind of hilarious. If you want to see what very polite Christian insulting looks like, read commentaries arguing about a, pos- a passage about whether Peter turning around here indicates that Jesus was beckoning Peter to go for a walk with him down the beach when he said, follow me. And they spill all this ink, debating that back and forth. But guess what? That's not the point. And it doesn't say in the passage. I don't think that's what Jesus means when he says, follow me, especially when we take verse 22 into account, which we'll get to in just a bit. All we know for certain is that Peter decides the best response to the words of Jesus is to turn around and find someone else to drag into the conversation. And that someone is John. This is one of those passages we referred to even earlier in our study through the Gospel of John that is used to confirm that this disciple whom Jesus loved that we've seen over and over is in fact John himself. Why does John also include here this little tidbit? Oh, and it was the one who was reclining on Jesus' bosom, who said, is this the one who betrays you, that guy? Well, I think there's a couple reasons. One is, I believe, our entire narrative here as we've been looking at Jesus' conversation with Peter is constantly tying back into the events of that upper room, back into Peter's boast about loving Jesus more than all the others, the promise that Peter would deny Jesus three times, the extensive teaching of Jesus on that night on how obedient death glorifies the Father. And as Jesus brings all those themes back in this conversation with Peter, I think it's also got John thinking back to that night as well and saying, yeah, I was that guy. I was there. Now I'm here. And that ties into the very end of his gospel, as we'll see next week, to reinforce that This John who writes these things, he's not some dispassionate third-party person who overheard these things. It's me. I was there. I saw it. I heard it. This is my eyewitness testimony. This is reliable. This is trustworthy. And so Peter turns around, sees John, and says, verse 21, so Peter seeing him said to Jesus, Lord, And what about this man? Classic Peter move, isn't it? Immediately after declaring that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, Peter had then rebuked Jesus about his coming suffering and death and resurrection. So the first thing that Jesus said to Peter after commending him for his confession of faith was, get behind me, Satan. Of course, there was that time they went up on a mountain and Jesus was transfigured before them. And they glimpsed a taste of Jesus' future glory in the company of Moses and Elijah and Peter decides this is a good time to jump in and start planting a camp out and where the tents are going to go and he has to literally be interrupted by the voice of God the Father. And don't forget there was that short-lived situation where he was walking on water and then turned into almost drowning in water. While we're at it, you might as well remember again the boasting of Peter in the upper room in front of everybody else. I love you more than all these guys. 
which turned directly into Peter being told he would make it 24 hours before denying Jesus three times. And now here we are. Jesus restores Peter with this thrice-over questioning of his love and commissioning Peter to serve the church. He gives Peter a prophetic vision of his future death and it concludes with that sober call to follow him even in the face of death itself. And the first thing out of Peter's mouth is, what about that guy? It's an inappropriate response. And obviously so, comically so in the passage. But it's one that we shouldn't judge too quickly, I think, without being a little bit reflective as well. Do we not sometimes look at our lives and what God has ordained for us and then turn to whoever is closest and think, but what about that guy? We despise, I think, sometimes the hardships of our circumstances and, in, and envy the apparent comfort, comfort of others around us. Or perhaps sometimes we despise the relative comfort of our lives and wonder why God doesn't call us to something more exciting or more important. Why do I live a boring Christian life? I think if we're honest, there's a little what about that guy and just about all of us. So what does Jesus have to say to Peter about it? And what would Jesus have to say to us about it? Verse 22, Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Therefore, this saying went out among the brethren that that disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? This is what you call a rebuke. It comes in two parts. His story is none of your business. Your business is to follow me. Any of you parents ever said something like that to your children? But why doesn't he have to help me? What he has to do is none of your business. Your business is to go clean your room, right? Brief note on verse 23 there. Peter isn't the only one who misses the point sometimes. Many in the first century believed that Jesus was coming back in their lifetime, and that's something every generation has believed since Jesus. But when reports of this conversation began to spread before John had written his gospel, a theory arose that Jesus was being a little sneaky here and hinting that the life of John was a countdown clock to the return of Jesus. And so you can imagine the late 70s and 80s, people were like, John's getting a little tottery. He's getting really old. Jesus is coming back soon. And John is throwing cold water on their pet theory. Yep, I could die any day now. And that has nothing to do with when Jesus returns. Back to verse 22. That's the main point. The first part of this rebuke that Jesus gives to Peter reminds me of that famous line from C.S. Lewis's The Horse and His Boy. When Aslan says, child, I am telling you your story, not hers. No one is told any story but their own. It is none of our business what God ordains for others. It's none of our business. And we ought to assume that it will usually be something else than what he ordains for us. The direction of Jesus is not for us all to walk the same path, but to follow the same guide and to follow our path such as he gives it until we reach the brighter end. Close with a few thoughts. Jesus never promised experience equity. 
never promised to experience equity. If we're all living the good Christian life, we are not to expect a uniform health, wealth, prosperity, happiness. It's not the case. Some will live a life that seems charmed and blessed and will pass into eternity peacefully. Some will suffer and suffer and then suffer some more and then die suffering. And that's exactly the way Jesus said it would be. We ought not to expect from Jesus that he is trying to be fair by making all of our lives the same. We should expect that Jesus is trying to glorify himself and glorify the Father by telling a million diverse stories, all of which he is sufficient for to give us joy even in the midst of whatever that story is. And the stories of heaven will not be, me too, me too, me too, me too. They will be, and what did Christ do in your life? Praise God. What did Christ do in your life? Praise God. It'll be endlessly fascinating to see what he has done in each of us uniquely. Secondly, the church's collective faithfulness depends on individual faithfulness. Jesus isn't talking to the disciples generally here. He's singling Peter out. The faithfulness of the disciples as a whole will be the foundation of the church. The faithfulness of that generation of the church as a whole will set the groundwork for the generations to come. Our faithfulness here as Valley Bible Church as a whole will lay the foundation for the faithfulness of this church in the next generation. But we can't simply disappear and hide behind the facade of a faithful church. We must be faithful people that comprise a faithful church. Each of us must individually have made the choice to follow him. Otherwise, we cannot collectively follow him either. The collective faithfulness of the church depends on our individual faithfulness. And so lastly, Christians should cultivate courage. Courage. Do not be afraid, Christian, to walk the path that Christ has for you. I think this is something that we are forgetting in our time. I almost laughed when I came across commentary on this passage by John Chrysostom, an early church father from the 4th century, because when I read this passage and and Peter turns around to John, he's like, hey, what about that guy? I was like, of course Peter said that, because who wants to have to go to a cross? And if you have to, who wants to have to go to a cross alone? Shouldn't it be fair? You know, Peter's like, oh, really? I have to to get crucified? Well, doesn't he have to get crucified too then? Anybody else kind of take it that way? Yeah, so I cracked me up when I read John Chrysostom's commentary. And John Chrysostom is writing and he says, Peter was so excited. He couldn't believe his good luck that he would get to be crucified for Jesus. And a blessed man was he where the first thing that comes to his mind is, if I get such a blessing, what about my best friend, John? Can he not come with me? Let us not be crucified together. They were made out of something different back then, weren't they? We need a little bit more of that today. I think they got a little too carried away with the martyr complex back then. But I think sometimes our church is a little bit like fainting goats. And every time the culture goes, boo, we go, man. Where's the courage of Christians where when the culture goes, boo, we say Jesus is still winning, right? I'll kill you. Fantastic. 
Cultivate courage, dear Christian, to follow him to the very end, which we recall now as we take our cup of communion. I invite the music team to come forward. We take this cup and we take this bread and we do so knowing that our salvation relies entirely and solely on the spilled blood and broken body of Jesus. His perfect righteousness, his perfect sacrifice alone are the grounds of our entrance into peace with God. However, consider that Jesus is beckoning those who come to the Father through him to be willing to break their own bodies and to spill their own blood. We are to imitate him. We don't have time this morning to read Philippians 2, 5 to 13, but I encourage you to write that down and reflect on it. In communion, we are declaring our salvation in Jesus. And it is inconceivable to the revelation of Scripture that those who so declare it would not also work that salvation out by the grace of God and the power of God. At the end of Paul's reflection on the suffering and glorification of Christ on our behalf, he writes in Philippians 2.12, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That is one reason why we are told to examine our hearts before we take communion. Because it is inappropriate to have a confession that says, I have followed him, and a life that says, I will not, and then to partake of the symbols of the death of Christ. And so let us just take a moment, if you would, to examine our hearts, that we would partake of this in a worthy manner and ask Christ that he would renew our desire to follow him to the very end today. Father, we thank you for Christ. Give us the grace to follow him. May we do all that we do in his name. And this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. To his disciples, Jesus said, follow me. 2,000 years later, we still respond by the grace of God. We shall. Let's take together. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Would you stand?